Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. My mission at Roland Dransfield has been to create magic out of the relationships I can bring together. That is how Manchester survives and thrives time and time again in adversity. This podcast celebrates those people that come together to make this city the greatest city on earth. People like my guest, Tom Hetherington. I've always believed you go to London to make money, you stay in Manchester to make a difference. Because Manchester, although it's a big city and it's possible to achieve big things, it still feels small enough that you can actually genuinely affect it. Tom is CEO of Holden Media Limited. He's an art buff and a big foodie. He brought the Manchester Art Fair to Manchester, which is now the biggest art fair outside of London. And he also set up the hugely popular Northern Restaurant and Bar Show, which is celebrating 20 years this year. Tom, thanks so much for joining me on We Built the City in person, actually, today. I know, it's like a back to the old routine, isn't it? Almost. <laughs> Feels very strange, but great. So you've made a very successful career at the centre of the art and gastronomy world. And obviously people have very different views about what they like and what they don't like, both in relation to food and art. What, in your view, constitutes good taste? It's a good question. Um, it's quite a complicated question to start me off with, actually. Um, I would say it fundamentally involves what is sometimes seen as a dirty word it's about education and I think people get really emotive about that it brings out snobbery and it brings out inverse snobbery where people think it's it's somehow about superiority or an elite or access and it's not it's just about if you have passion for something and a curiosity you want to learn about it you want to learn more and that could be anything it could be fishing it could be football it could be fossils whatever you like but if you if you're passionate and curious the more you learn the more your opinion becomes nuanced the more you have to kind of benchmark and compare with so for example if someone had been following United for two years and said I've never seen there's been no better United player than Rashford at cutting in off the wing and scoring goals you'd say well great player and what a phenomenal person but you might want to consider maybe Giggs or Ronaldo or Steve Coppel or best you know whoever your your uh, your kind of striker winger is so you need that perspective and you need that knowledge the more you experience the more you read the more you find out get on the internet the more and this is a, a terrible thing to say the more your opinions count the more you've experienced the more you've learned the more weight gets behind your opinions because you can say you can say with some authority i've tried this pizza place the other day and it's probably the best pizza place in the uk um you can only say that if you've trawled around the uk eating pizza in every place <laughs> that everyone said was great which doesn't sound much of a hardship so yeah i think great taste is something that comes from learning and i don't think people should be scared of the idea of learning or education as a as a kind of an elitist thing or something that deprives people of access you know with the internet and the way it is now we we can all follow our passions and we can all educate ourselves and I think that's a really positive thing mm, absolutely and I suppose your taste changes in different times of your life or different ages doesn't it and what you're exposed to yeah it's a it's a constant journey and a, a, as I say if you if you find that passion then um, it's it's a joy to be honest to to pursue it you know as I say whether it's stamp collecting or, or whatever floats your boat I think being passionate and and learning and meeting people who maybe share your 
your passion but know more than you do is is a great thing um and my my big thing at the minute that I'm into or getting into is wine and the main thing I know about wine is I'm starting to understand how little I know about wine which I think is the is the first thing to to get your head around the known unknowns as opposed to the unknown unknowns but wine is fascinating because again there's a lot of snobbery and a lot of inverse snobbery about wines and and it is you know it's subjective but some of the things I've, I've found out are really interesting. I think one of the things I've been most struck by is that an important thing of having good taste is being able to articulate it. There needs to be a commonality of language for you to describe what you taste in a wine or what you like or don't like in a wine that other people will understand. So a lot of these kind of ridiculous um, kind of Jilly Goulden style terms that you hear people you know, refer to tasting pencil lead in a, in a Cabernet Franc or something like that. It's, it's important to have these words because and everyone to calibrate and understand what those words mean. You might drink wine and say, OK, well, this tastes, this tastes wibble because wibble is my word for that taste in the wine. But that's no good if no one else understands what that word means. So what real wine geeks do, they actually get this um, this lovely little presentation box with all these like tens and tens of little glass vials in and each one has a particular scent in it which you you smell and you kind of commit to your memory and you calibrate each of them will have a name and you're like okay I get that now I know when people say they they taste leather or they smell leather on a wine I get what that is I can calibrate that so now I can recognize it and I can explain that to someone else about wines and uh, yeah you know there I am I'm learning I'm educating myself and I find that sort of thing absolutely fascinating that is so interesting i think a lot of people have got into wine over lockdown <laughs> yes it's uh yeah i think wine sales have been quite buoyant in uh, in retail while while we couldn't get it in restaurants and bars <laughs> i think so absolutely so you launched the bio art fair in 2008 which became the manchester art mm-hmm. fair and you added the manchester contemporary onto to that in 2009 how hard was it to launch an art exhibition in manchester 12 years ago I would say that it's probably the single hardest thing that I've ever done professionally. Um, And if I'd known how hard, as the cliche goes, I I probably wouldn't have done it at all. Um, I went into it uh, myself and my team um, from a a position of kind of blundering naivety, really. Um, Myself and and my girlfriend, we'd hit about 30 at at the time. We were just over 30. And sadly, Sophie's granddad had passed away and left us a very small amount of money. And we decided... We wouldn't just pay off our credit cards or something horrible and dull. We'd we'd buy a piece of art to remember him by. Uh, We thought we were kind of grown-ups and we'd got past that point of clip art frames and and posters from Habitat. You know, we like black olives and red wine. We have grown-up tastes. We'll buy some proper proper art. And I'd always grown up in and around the art world. Um, A lot of family friends growing up were artists or art lecturers or art historians. And my dad used to drag me to gallery launches and, and Manchester Art Gallery and so on. So I felt quite comfortable with that world but I couldn't I couldn't find anywhere to buy art I was actually staggered at how difficult it actually was to buy art in Manchester you know this supposedly cultural European metropolis of two and a half million people and I think at the time there were probably maybe two or three commercial art galleries in the city centre and although in their own way they were wonderful they were a very certain style of art and a style of gallery they only opened every alternate tuesday under a full moon and you had to push a buzzer to get in all quite kind of intimidating i I think and i just felt at the time as somebody ran an exhibition company where we did big events 
for the north of England. Um, and as someone who at the time sat on the board of Urbis as well, which was a fantastic cultural institution, I thought there has to be an opportunity to find a way to bring more out to Manchester. There must be more people like me who are lucky enough to have a little bit of money and have the, the aesthetic interest and the, the cultural interest in um, in buying art. So, yeah, we just decided to launch an art fair. And what I completely failed to appreciate is how endemic, unfortunately, um, a degree of snobbery can be in the art world, um, if that's not too blunt a term. It, it can be an industry that sometimes complains that it doesn't get enough credit, that not enough people are buying art, not enough people are supporting artists but unfortunately I think it's sometimes its own worst enemy that it, it makes itself very closed mm. and very opaque very difficult to get into so I think we felt there was an opportunity to to make it more democratic and egalitarian to to make art accessible without making accessible art it wasn't about dumbing down it was just about taking a very Mancunian attitude to putting it in a really straightforward unpretentious environment and letting people appreciate the art for what it is but the art world didn't initially see it that way. Mm. Um, and I have to admit, I spoke to people, friends in the art world in London, and um, I've used this phrase before, but it's absolutely true. They, they all said there's no galleries in Manchester because no one buys art. And I said, no, no one buys art because there's no galleries. Something needs yeah. to disrupt this. You cannot tell me that the audience isn't there, the affluence isn't there, the cultural interest, the philanthropic interest is not there. I just don't believe it. Um, and I, I banged that drum to the art world for a long time, but we didn't have a pedigree. You know, we, we hadn't come from an arts background. So the art world was very sceptical about our ability to get it right. And to be honest, there was some justification in that because I, I think we did make lots of mistakes in, in the early years. Um, and it was tough to get that momentum and get artists to take us seriously. It took a good couple of years for us really to get our head around it. But we did, and, and we stuck at it. Um, we sold now, I think, nearly £5 million worth of art in the in the duration of the, the fair into a city that everyone said, no one's going to buy art, and we've proved them wrong and in a Mancunian way. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the public institutions started to take us seriously, and the artist studios started to take us seriously, because our attitude always was that this isn't some walled citadel. We're not trying to lock everyone else out. This is really an asset for the wider art ecology. We want to help the cultural industries and the artistic industries in this city survive. You know, we want to be a marketplace for them. I think the turning point probably, there were two people who each in their own way was phenomenally uh, important and hyper-credible in the art world. And one was Maria Bolshaw, Mm who now runs the Tate and at the the time was the director of Manchester Art Gallery in the Whitworth. And the other was Frank Cohen, who is worth a podcast all on his own. He's a a, a wonderful man. He grew up in Cheatham Hill, um, selling offcuts of wallpaper on market stalls and and rose to become one of the top 200 art collectors in the entire world um, and helped to break a lot of the kind of the YBAs, the young British artists Mm. like Damien Hirst, uh, etc. He's just an incredible guy. And what I'd realised in the art world is that it's not always what you say, it's who speaks for you or who says it. Advocacy is vitally, vitally important. Reputation is everything. Um, So to have these two people actually speak up and say, do you know what, what Tom and his team are doing is right and yeah. is important, kind of tipped tipped everything. Yeah. And, and and it changed the dynamic and it changed the momentum of the fair. And, and we've kind of pushed on 
and matured since then. And we started, we certainly got a national profile now. We're actually one of the biggest um, art fairs in the whole of the UK, but more and more now we're starting to attract international galleries mm-hmm. as well, which is absolutely fantastic and so good for the city and the city's reputation. Um, without being too reductive about it, I think it's it looks bad for any city claiming to be a cultural centre not to have an art fair. Yeah. You know, people would question why that was. Um, so I think for Manchester and its brand, particularly internationally, we we kind of slot into that deck for want of a less trite phrase. You know, we are a nice way of saying this is what Manchester is at the city. We have a Michelin star restaurant. We have an art fair. We have this. We have that. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of balances out what Manchester is. And I think the thing I'm most proud of is that it would have been a lot easier to just open an art fair in London up here there was all the potential but almost no audience we've had to grow and develop our own we've had to build a network within the city we've had to think holistically and because of that we fundamentally changed the landscape and I know that sounds egotistical but there's a lot of things I do which although I think they're great I know it's just part of a part of a business that someone else would have done anyway you know it always would have happened anyway we just got there at the right time and did a a good job of it and uh, yeah I'm really proud of that. Yeah, you should be. And it's an incredible legacy. And it's also a wonderful event to come to. And I, I come to it and uh, always end up buying something. Like you say, you know, I think in the early 90s, there was a, like a gallery on, on Tib Street. or There just, was Tib Lane. Tib yeah. Lane. But there's just so few. And whereas now you feel that you, in Manchester, the art world's burgeoned in terms of homegrown art as well, hasn't it? In terms of the, the artists. and Yeah, there's fa- fantastic artists within the city. Um, Salford and Manchester Art Schools yeah. are, are both producing fantastic graduates and hopefully we can keep more of those there's a really nice story actually i went to an art fair uh, in london which is called sunday art fair which is kind of comparable to what we do with the manchester contemporary it's a great fair and while we were walking around myself and, and my partner sophie i saw an artist on a on a particular stand and it just caught my eye i've got a habit of buying oil paintings about yay big we have a house full of oil paintings i'm showing the size for people listening to the podcast but they're all about the same size and this was more relatively small oil paintings and sophie was like no we're not having more small oil paintings but i went over and the gallerist pounced on me as gallerists should do and it was a it was a gallery from los angeles and they said okay this artist um she's originally from up north um and i was like okay that's interesting and she said yes she studied i think in manchester and then i think she possibly went to glasgow if i remember rightly as well but she at that point when people were tipping her for big things she didn't go to london even though that's what everyone expected she said no i need to return to the north because the north informs my work my work is a product of the north and my environment and that's really important to me so they were playing my tune this was like they are absolutely (laughs) (laughs) reeling me in here and then she mentioned that this artist in particular is um i think she's originally from the Peak District and I live in, I live mm. in Glossop I'm a, a kind of vocal advocate for the joys of Glossop and the Peak District and I'm like right I'm done for now it, clearly this has my name on it so I didn't buy it then but when I got on the train back I, I checked out this artist called Evie O'Connor and she's actually from Glossop she's from the oh. same town that I am <clears throat> so I had to go to an art fair in London and talk to a gallery from Los Angeles to find an artist who actually grew up in the same small Pennine Mill Town that, uh, that I'm from, which is amazing. Unbelievable. So I have got a couple of pieces of, of work by the artist. She's called Evie O'Connor. Um, she's currently based out of Paradise Works in, in Salford, the studio's there. And But I think artists like her who make an active choice not to go to London 
I think that is so, so important that we can retain their talent and keep them in the city. And that's partly about creating markets for them and the infrastructure that they need. They need galleries to sell their work. They need spaces to show. They need affordable places to, to live and to practice in terms of studio space. And I think a lot of people head to London and they give up a lot to be there. You know, mm. it costs a lot. It affects your quality of life. Everything in this mistaken belief that you can only make it in London and the Sutton research actually showed that more people achieve more and show more social mobility in a bigger city or town close to where they where they grew up and really cities like Manchester should be getting a hold of that and saying to young talent and you know ambitious people and the next generation you can do it here yeah. you can do more here and probably have a better balance of life yeah. we need to retain our talent and I think we need to bang the drum for Manchester on that score. I think that's happening so much more. And also that is about you being um, an integral part of your community, isn't it? I mean, it's about your relationships. It's about building on those from a very early age. I've always believed you go to London to make money, you stay in Manchester to make a difference. Because Manchester, although it's a big city and it's possible to achieve big things, it still feels small enough that you can actually genuinely affect it. Yeah. in a way that you probably can't in London. And the art fair is probably a perfect example of that, whereas if I did an art fair in London, I'd probably make more money out of it and I could run an art fair there for 20 years and sell the loads of art and then I could close it. And it would leave probably not a ripple. It wouldn't really have fundamentally changed anything. But by doing the art fair in Manchester, which, you know, Lord knows has been a much uh, harder challenge, we have fundamentally changed the city and we've impacted on so many different areas of the city and relationships within it and dynamics within it. And I just find that more gratifying. Mm. You know, we we all want money. We all want to be safe. We all want to be able to provide for our families and not struggle. And I get that. But once you get to a certain point, I get much more of a kick out of changing things. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, maybe that's as egotistical or, or misguided as chasing money in all honesty. I don't, I don't know. But I just I get a real thrill when you you have an impact and you see things change and you can see that they're better. And you think I did that or at least I was part of that happening. And you can do that in Manchester, but do it on a big scale because it's a big international city. So many people who've been on the podcast have said the same thing, that their business or what they do, their art is so much more than just about what they're doing on a daily basis. It's the, it's the bigger picture. Um, and yeah. it, they're not necessarily for money at all, actually. They're in it for what they can leave, what legacy and the difference they can make. So I suppose there is some ego in there, yeah, but, I mean, it feels more altruistic to me than just looking at your bank balance. I think selfish altruism is the, is the way forward. <laughs> yeah. You know, that way everyone's a winner. <laughs> so that's great, yeah, true. If you want to know how to build a community that dances on tables, you can find out right here on the We Built The City podcast. Obviously, moving on to hospitality, the other big passion of yours, the Northern Restaurant and Bar Show is now the mm. largest hospitality exhibition outside of London, mm. and you launched the first one 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. So this year was going to be your 20th, and we literally went into lockdown, didn't we, as you were about to, to run that, that exhibition? We did, yeah. It was, um, it was gruesome timing, really, and uh, it's been horrifically damaging for the, in, the entire hospitality industry. You know, I have so many friends, so many contacts, so many people I speak to on a regular basis are, are in this industry. Um, and it's it's without doubt the most devastating thing that they've ever had to yeah. face. Um, so we, we had to think quite hard about what we could do in the interim to, to help. You know, it will be next year until we run the exhibition now. Uh, we've had to postpone, but that doesn't mean we want to do nothing in the meantime. We know that the industry needs support and the industry needs help. Um, and we have an audience, we have a voice, we have a reach. 
we have a database um, of about 25,000 hospitality professionals, hospitality operators that we, we can speak to and huge reach on social media as well. Um, and we're now at the point with the beginning of unlockdown to see businesses starting to get back on their feet again. Mm-hmm. And we all know that numbers are down. And we all know at the minute that there has been some really significant government support, which has which has helped with costs for now. Um, but it feels it feels on a fine balance for the industry, and it's certainly not it's not even. A lot of suburban places and and kind of market town places are, are doing quite well in yeah. relative terms. City centre places are still largely decimated by the lack of the corporate market, both for events and for general footfall and also tourism, whether that is football or whether it's major events like MIF or, you know, whether it's something on at the arena or an event at Manchester Central. That's really tough for them. And I think maybe some food businesses are are doing better than wet lead, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite a kind of complicated mosaic. Um, I think everyone is really enjoying. They're really grateful just to have their doors open again and to be able to serve people food or pour people a drink and interact with customers. Um, We all only want that to happen safely and at the right time. But if we don't get those audiences back, particularly... Uh, for Manchester tourism audiences and, and corporate audiences, it, it's going to be an incredibly tough mm-hmm. autumn for the industry. So I, th- I think there's still a lot of um, uncertainty and a lot of nervousness out there. Mm. And Manchester's become such a place for visitors to come, hasn't it? So obviously we do re- rely on those visitors and students and international students and their families. Yeah. We we have become, um, unfortunately, a victim of our own success. Yes. You know, yeah. I, I think we've been a bit of a beacon really for for regional cities in in the UK in the way that we've grown our our food and drink sector and our cultural sector. And those have been underpinned by a number of drivers, which I think arguably we do better with than than any other comparable city in the UK. And one one was city centre restaurants. One was the kind of growth of the corporate business market, particularly with developments like Spinning Fields and Media City, the strength of the professional services and and property sectors. Um, And then tourism has has been huge as well. And that's been largely event-driven. A lot of that is underpinned by events. Manchester has been fantastic uh, and has great facilities, whether it is Manchester Central or the football clubs, of course, particularly with European football or the arena, um, or things like MIF, Manchester International Festival. These these have been so key. Um, so although we've, we've probably done better than other cities over the last 10 to 15, 20 years, I think we've been hit more sharply. Um, and as a city, we need to plan and think quite carefully about how we come back from that and how we change and adapt going forward. Mm-hmm. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is so many good things that we've done that we need to keep doing. Mm-hmm. Um and for me personally, I, I would like to see us, I would like to see an evolution of the city rather than a, a revolution. I'm hoping we can recover from COVID, manage to recover. I hope it can cling to its strengths, but maybe maybe make some changes for the better along the way as well. Learn from this process and, and look at what we can do differently and how we can build back better, but do it in a, in a kind of balanced and considered way. Um, as I say, creative destruction, I think, is a nice theory, but... It, there's a lot of victims in practice. Well, it doesn't pay the bills, does it? It doesn't it, keep the bread on the table, it literally. Pay the bills. Um, and obviously, I mean, we're known as a city of restaurants now, and that you know that has been. I remember when I came back to Manchester after university in the early nineties, 
and you couldn't find a restaurant in the week that had anybody in it. I think it was just by the Dutch Pancake House or something. That was about the only place. And then on a Sunday, there was literally probably one pub open. Whereas now, the diversity and and the the growth and the variety is incredible, isn't Mm -hmm. it? And I think the independent sector is key for us, isn't it? And, And that's probably the area of the industry that's most at risk. Yes, you're right that the the Indies are particularly vulnerable because they don't have the cash reserves. They sometimes don't have the the experience or the resilience in the business to be able to to ride out the sort of churn and the, the panic on the high street that we're seeing at the moment. And one of the things we did was look at the growth in independent restaurants. And I think Manchester was the second best city in the country, slightly behind Leeds, in terms of the growth in independent operators in the preceding, I think it was three years, if, if I remember rightly. And in terms of absolute numbers, Manchester was the largest outside of London by a country mile. So we have had this really good um growth in, in independence. I think they have led the way in the city. They've they've actually they've set new standards, they've created new markets, they've opened up new niches, they've introduced people to new concepts and ideas and cuisines. They've they've arguably created entirely new districts. You know, the Northern Quarter mm-hmm. and Ancoats would not be there without the independents taking those risks and, and getting in there first. Although it's it's grim reading at the minute for restaurants and bars and, and pubs, we can help to keep Indies alive just by going to them, just using them, you know, whether it's eating in, whether it's takeaway, whether it's delivery, we can make a real tangible difference to which independence or whether independence survive or not. And, um, you know, we all have to we all have to make sure we're OK financially. But if we are, it's nice to spread the love and, yeah. and support those indies because we we can change that. We don't have to take it as read that there's going to be a mass extinction event in the restaurant and bar sector. It doesn't have to be that way. And we can support our indies to get them through. And I think Manchester is doing that and will continue to do so. There was so much innovation in lockdown from some of the independents. I mean, like Simon Wood and um, Gary Usher and Michael O'Hearn. I mean, they were doing everything from, well, really d- delivery, but then also kind of Zoom masterclass, masterchefs, yeah. or, you know, you could get a dinner, dinner party in a box. Yeah. And they were massively supportive, weren't they? I mean, it's incredible to see because they must have been under so much... I mean, terror in a way at that time, but they just pivoted, didn't they? And they've really kind of got on top of that. And that's extended their brand in a way and how people in, engage with that brand. Yeah, it, it has. They, you know, they, they all did a brilliant job, as you say. And I think from what I hear, many of those operators and also people like Rudy's who are doing national delivery as well, they did it as a as a kind of not a panic measure, but as a as you say, as a as a pivot to lockdown to just ensure that their business kept going and yeah. that they kept turning over. But it's actually turned into a viable revenue stream. Yeah. It wasn't just a sticking plaster to get them through in retrospect. This is something that works and that people want and they enjoy doing it. So I think in a lot of these cases, you will see these businesses come back and hopefully they can get their core restaurant or bar businesses back to where they were. But actually, they will come out slightly bigger and better because they will have more strings to their bow, more revenue streams, which means a little more resilience if if we hit Mm. kind of economic bumps in the road going forward. So, Mm. you know, I, I like to try and clutch at positives i'm a relentless optimist and a very pollyanna-ish person and uh, i like to think maybe that's one for all of our businesses probably yeah it has evolved hasn't it in a really kind of positive way um have you always been a foodie no it's um it's a point of constant humor in my family particularly with my mum and dad that i would not eat anything growing up I wouldn't eat anything. My dad and my mum both say that I basically only ate ham or cheese sandwiches till I was about eight. I wouldn't eat anything. I would have pasta with butter on. 
<laughs> and that was it. At one point, they had to take me to a clinic because they were worried that I was so underweight. And in our house growing up in um, Broadbottom, we had a massive spray of baby food across the ceiling <laughs> where my mum, in a complete breakdown, had thrown this pot of food that I refused to eat across the ceiling. And it was there like an incriminating mark for, for the rest of my um my early years. So yeah, I wouldn't eat anything. I don't think I'd even eaten curry until I went to um, university. I just wasn't adventurous at all. <laughs> Proper beige food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was. I was painfully um, shy and quiet and hated talking to people or doing anything or joining in and I wouldn't eat anything. So yeah, my parents constantly point out where I've ended up and just say it's ridiculous. Who could have predicted that? You know, was... I remember you when is the story. What was the, the change? No, that's a very good question. I think in terms of kind of confidence and things, everyone changes through their their teenage years, and you you know you find your yourself, or if you're lucky, you you find yourself. Sometimes it takes much longer. You know, maybe people have it as a midlife crisis or whatever. But I I certainly got my head around who I was, and you know felt a kind of peace with that and a confidence with that. And then the food side, I honestly I honestly don't quite know. I think it was possibly environment I, I came back to Manchester a similar time to you we came back in 95 um, and it was just as that whole cafe society as it was called at the time uh, idea was kicking off you know that actually a bar wasn't just a place to go and get drunk it needed to look right mm. and it needed to look cool and it needed to have interesting food you know it, it had to be more there was a lifestyle associated with it uh, it wasn't just an extension of a pub it was a, it was a thing you know a cool thing to to aspire to so when we came back and we we lived close to the city center when we when we first came back we were seeing all of these bars popping up so places like um Dry Bar was in its heyday mm. and Bar 10 on Tariff Street and Isa Bar. And then at the other end of town, you had Alaska on Whitworth Street and Canal Bar and Atlas um, and, and places like Grinch as well. Restaurants like Grinch were kind of coming through and they were cool. Goat's Cheese Pizza, yeah. you know, it was the future. It was this <laughs> revolutionary thing. And I think because it was all happening and it was all starting to get talked about, I, I just I got into it and I found that actually... Actually, I like food. Actually, I really liked food. Actually, I had this kind of dormant, obsessive geekism about food that just kind of got unlocked. And, and really, as Manchester blossomed as a, as a food and drink city, my own passion for food and drink kept pace with it. The, the two things happened in synchronicity, really. Oh, that's so interesting. I think, you know, you're grown up when you like the taste of olives. Yeah. That, that was is, always a tipping point. That is the benchmark. So... What would you say in that time was the was the establishment or the offer that changed stuff that really stood out? I think there's probably a couple of things really, and and sadly, not all of them made it. I look for the places that were that were influential, but maybe ahead of their time. Maybe they didn't quite get the traction at the time, but they probably changed things thereafter, even if they themselves didn't um, sustain. So. For me, the first place which really kind of wowed me and made me think this is different was Machinaire, mm. which was just gobsmacking, really, when you look back at it. It had that incredible kind of interior design, like a like a spaceship, all oranges and, and blues and that, that lime green. Um, Jason Atherton was the head chef yeah. who's gone on to have, I, I forget whether it's six or nine Michelin stars he has now across the world. He's, he's arguably one of the world's great chefs and he cut his teeth there cooking in the kitchen up in air. But if you actually wrote a pitch for what it was and you'd say, OK, it's a combination bar restaurant, casual downstairs, relaxed, fine dining in trainers upstairs. Um, we're going to have a microbrewery. 
We, everyone can see everything there, see the beer getting brewed. We're going to do sourdough wood-fired pizzas. People would say, are you launching that tomorrow? And it's like, yeah. no, it was 20, 20 years ago. I think it's kind of 99, 2000 that, yeah. that it launched. It, and I've read the menu. I actually did a, an interview with Jason Atherton at NRB last year. And we did a little game for charity where I read out dishes which were either from one of his current restaurants or from Machinaire 20 years ago. And he had to tell the difference whether it was current dishes from chefs who were doing cooking demos at NRB. And he got most of them right, but it was incredibly difficult because if you go back and read that Machinaire menu or the air menu, the upstairs mm. fine dining, it was brilliant. Mm. It, it would read as well today as it did 20 years ago. It was, it was an incredible place. Mm. So I think that for me, although sadly it didn't, it didn't survive... It was a game changer. It certainly opened my eyes. The amount of time I spent in there on those two floors. I think we always used to nick the ashtrays. and They were iconic. Yeah. I still was... have my membership card <laughs> for, for Machinaire. Really? Yeah, I'll, I'll dig it out. I've got it somewhere. And um, I think everyone kept one of the envelopes for the bills because it was yes. that little powder blue envelope and it said the damage on That's it, right, yeah. which was great. Oh, what a place that was, definitely. If you're loving We Built This City please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform. Thank you. So who's achieving great things now in Manchester? We've got our first Michelin star. Who, who, who for you is kind of the future? Um, we have got our first Michelin star. And I think what Simon has done at, at, at Manor is absolutely stupendous. I, I think it's a brilliant restaurant. And um, I've been blown away every time that I've been there. And I think talking to the guy and looking at how it's already developing, he has ambitions for the future. He's not going to stop there. He is he is going to push on. But as well as that, I would argue that what Adam Reed is doing at the French is equally Michelin star worthy. Mm. Um, I think it's currently rated 13th best restaurant in the UK in the Good Food Guide, which is a very serious, very well-respected guide. And it's been consistently around that level now for a number of years. I think he's got four AA rosettes and you could argue that anyone who eats in Michelin star restaurants and was blindfolded and put in the French would assume that they were eating in a Michelin star restaurant. I think Adam is a is a fabulous cook. Um so it's great it's great that we've got that. Some people again with reverse snobbery can say, Well, I don't care about Michelin and it's not relevant and yada 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 and that's fine. If they don't want to eat there, that's absolutely fine. But it does generate footfall, it does generate attention to the city, it does bring in visitors because it becomes a destination. Yeah. If you live in Manchester, then fair enough. If you don't want to eat at Manor and you would rather eat in your local amazing pasta restaurant, and that's brilliant too. But people probably aren't going to travel to Manchester and stay in the hotel and bring the investment that the visitor economy brings to eat in your little local pasta restaurant. Mm. Um, but they will come from Manor. So I think those sorts of restaurants are are important for Manchester and they are important in rounding out the restaurant ecology and making sure that there's something for everyone. I think the people who have stood out in Manchester over the last couple of years for me... I think Bundabust would be one of them. Yeah. They're not Mancunians, but they are on the verge, uh, once lockdown allows, of opening their second site in Manchester. And I think what they've done is is brilliant. They're fantastic guys. I took Jay Rayner there to review it. I knew that he'd love it, and he, he did. He gave it a glowing review. But I remember him saying to me at the table, so how many of these have they got? Have they got like six or seven? And I said, no, they've got a tiny original in Leeds, and this is their first big site and he couldn't believe it because everything felt so on point right. you know from the branding the way the tables were laid out the imagery the graphics it didn't feel like 
a concept finding its way. If someone had told you there were 30 of these around the UK, you would have gone, yeah, that sounds about right. right. You could kind of go on all day listing the talent that's coming through in Manchester. I think we are we are blessed with a, a particular creative entrepreneurial spirit which has become melded with a passion for or an obsession for food and drink. And there are just countless new operators with new ideas and new ways of working coming through all the time. It is amazing. It's, it's one of the things I most enjoy about it mm. uh, you know life is too short to w- work with awful people and yeah. uh, I've picked out sectors where I genuinely like the vast majority of people within them you know mm. the hospitality industry is full of good people mm. and so what kind of values do you kind of observe in in those circles what do they stand for I suppose we've seen so much of that in terms of lack of competition and integrity I think I think it's seen as quite an elite club you know it's quite I've never run a restaurant or a bar. I've been in and around this industry for over two decades now, nearly a quarter century, but I've never run a restaurant or a bar because I know it well enough to see exactly, exactly how difficult it is, mm. um, how how kind of challenging it is. You know, it destroys people and destroys relationships and destroys health done badly. Yeah. Um, it's It's incredibly tough, incredibly competitive and incredibly demanding. So I think there is... A camaraderie or a kinship amongst anyone who actually gets in there and does it you know anyone who's been dealing with awful you know diners or, or visitors because they're drunk and being obnoxious anyone who's done a deep kitchen clean at one o'clock in the morning when everyone has gone home everyone who's worked you know split shifts days on the bounce it's almost like a like a badge of honour. I mean, maybe it's like if you've served in the army or, or something like that, and I just don't think you really understand it fully until you've done it. So, yeah, there is this this kinship where, yes, they're all fighting for, for diners, they're all fighting for drinkers, but ultimately anyone who sticks their neck out, backs themselves, creates a business trying to run a food and drink operation, there is this really strong mutual respect, mm-hmm. and you you don't kind of let people fall. So obviously we were talking about values and we have the Roland Ransville Way, which is 15 principles of how we want to live um, professionally and personally. Are there any of those values that particularly stand out for you? I don't think there was any that I, I disagreed with. They all seemed really, really sensible ways to run any company. Manchester is too small a city to be a dick. You will get found out and you depend on that repeat audience. You, you've kind of, you've got to be good guys. Yeah. And I think the the other thing for me, which echoes a lot of your points I always say is is just to be kind, do good, have fun. And and really, you know, if if you can if you can do those three things, then you're gonna have a, a good imprint upon the world and the people who work for you and you know the people who meet you and you interact with. And and that's what we we try to do really. We try to think about that in, in the company and it's certainly always in my head as well and it's served me well thus far. I'm still here and uh, you know hopefully hopefully for the near future, the far future too. So, I'm going to ask you a few questions about Manchester. Go for it. So, okay, if you had to design a three-course meal for Manchester based on what you believe it loves, what would it be? That's a that's a really <laughs> difficult question. I think I think this is a strength to say that it's impossible to generalize Manchester now. I think 20, 30 years ago it had this vision that no one wanted to pay for serious food and it was just a big boozing city. And it was almost like a caricature. The people who ate and drink in Manchester, they were just a one-dimensional cutout. And I think the city, the the explosion in the the breadth and depth and diversity and quality of the England drinking scene has shown that there is no 
there is no standardised Mancunian anymore in terms of what they like to eat and drink. So I could probably only talk personally. And the, there are there are dishes that that jump out. I'm a carb fiend. I love bread. Bread is the one thing that I cannot give up. I cannot live without bread. I, I absolutely adore it. So the, the, the big, it would be quite a bread-heavy list, I think. <laughs> I love the bread that Adam Reed does. He's got his own bread which is made by um pollen bakery and he does it with this beef butter mm. which is just superb so I, I would have that to kick off he serves it at the start of the meal and I, I would have that um for sure um i think i'd be hard pushed not to have a not to have a rudy's pizza to be honest but that seems almost almost too much if i'm going to get multi-courses in here i think if i had a main course I'm thinking off the top of my head, the main course that stayed with me the most that I've had over the last year or two is the eel that um, that's done at Manor. I don't know whether you've had it. It's eel. It's done over a little Japanese charcoal grill and it's brushed with a kind of um, blueberry vinegar and a, a, a yeast, a roast yeast sauce, which sounds incredibly pretentious. But it's just you've got the oiliness of the of the eel and the meatiness and then the sharpness and the kind of umami of this sauce as well. It's just unbelievable. And he serves it in these little skewers as a, because it's part of the tasting menu. And I could basically just eat a big bowl of it. I really could eat a big bowl of it. So I, I would quite like that to be in the in the mix as well, definitely. Um, I spend a lot of time at Hawksmoor. And the one thing I cannot leave Hawksmoor without having, I don't always have a full dessert, but I do have a very sweet tooth. I have to have a, a pudding at the end mm. of every meal. It's like a gastronomic full stop. It's the end of the meal. So I would have, they do these um, salted caramel Rolos, which are a riff on Rolos, but a thousand times better than any Rolo you've ever eaten. They're the most incredible things and you get a little set of three of them. Um, and I always eat them all on my own and won't share them <laughs> with anyone. They're absolutely brilliant. And I, I would probably get George Bergier, who is Manchester's greatest living sommelier and a, and a legend to choose me a wine. And I would go for a pint in the circus afterwards yes. because I adore the circus. <laughs> it's the pub to end all pubs. It's where I tend, uh, I intend to see out the end of the world. You know, if, if this is it and Armageddon is upon us, <laughs> then there. I'm going to sit in the circus with a pint. <laughs> I think you and half of Manchester can get them in there. Yeah. Um, City or United? United all day long. United since I was a little kid at primary school. I wasn't massively into football, but um, there was a lad, he was called Stuart Garlic, and he got me in a headlock. He was older than me, and he got me in a headlock and said, who do you support? And I remember being dimly aware that there was two teams in Manchester. And I thought, hmm, this is, this is going to be de decisive. And I said, United? And he said, good lad, and ruffled my hair and let me go. And I thought, OK, that'll do me. I'm a United fan. And I've been so... Ever since, and a, a season ticket holder for, for many years until my own boys' weekend sporting activities yeah. took over. I had to decide between watching my kids or watching United, and it was a very, very difficult choice. But um, I've watched my kids play sports for the last uh, decade or so. But yeah, United through and through. And what do you order at the chippy? It's a good question. I do go, I go fish and chips. And then I have mushy peas. I know I shouldn't, and I don't actually want to know what's in them, but I just love them. And then I know the northern thing is to have gravy, but I like curry sauce with the fish. Yeah. I really like curry sauce and fish. So many people say that, actually. Yeah. And also, Sir Richard Lees apparently has got his own mushy peas recipe that I'm going to find out about. Yeah, he's not he's not all for giving that up, actually, but yeah. Okay, well, he we, need, said we need amazing. to we need we to do need to, that we do. out of him. So, and then, okay, final question. What would you have as your last supper? Okay. Who would you have round your table and who would paint it? Okay. So that's interesting. 
it's hard for me to pin down one meal. It's like when people say, you know, what's your favourite album or your favourite film or something. But I would say that there's there's one meal which has probably got more significance for me than any other meal that that I have, and we have it regularly every Friday, which is why you very rarely see me out on a Friday because this thing is kind of sacrosanct. And every Friday we have a curry from the local curry house as a family Mm. and we all sit around. The kids start talking about it the day before because they're that excited Mm. about having a curry. And it's a tradition that Sophie and I started when we first moved back to Manchester in 95. We used to go to Tandoori Kitchen in uh, Rushome, which was an incredible place and was the birthplace of city life, amongst other things. And then when we lived in West Didsbury, we used to go to um, the Kathmandu. And then when we moved out to Glossop, we found kind of local curry houses out there. So for nearly a quarter century we've had these Friday night curries and the the kids have them now as well. So if I had one meal, it would be a Friday night curry from my local curry house with my family. And in terms of who paints it, this might sound, it might sound unexpected, but actually I hate being photographed and I hate being filmed. I've never watched any film of me ever for any kind of interviews I've done. I've just got a horribly overdeveloped sense of embarrassment. So the idea of being painted is almost like that turned up to 11. I don't think I could cope. I I would lock the doors and not let any artists in and I would just have a Friday night curry with my family. (laughs) I love that. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tom, and we built this city. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. There's no doubt that over the last 20 years you've helped to raise Mancunian's appreciation of both great art and food. And good luck with your rescheduled NRB show. So that's going to be next year, isn't it, in March at Manchester Central. So it's going to be... 2021, but it's your 20th It, it will still be our 20th yeah. birthday, so we, we intend to have a, a celebration. We, you know, we hope that we're leaving the worst of this behind us and, and the economy's coming back and hospitality's coming back and everyone's in the mood for a bit of optimism and positivity mm. and we'll, we'll aim to bring that. I'm sure, and I can't wait to be there. Thanks again. All right, thank you. Tom has built this city by bringing art for Manx to buy, by having passion and curiosity and by knowing his leather from his licorice. We Built This City is out every Thursday. My next guest is Manchester actor Chris Bisson, who you'll know from the two biggest northern soaps, Coronation Street and Emmerdale. And if it wasn't for the Manchester cotton trade, his mum and dad would never have met. This is a podcast from Roland Dransfield PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you want your company to be part of that, give us a call on the number we've always had, 0161 236 double one, double two.